Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Surf Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival. I'm your host, John Brooks, and with me as always is co-host Kevin Miller. I'm back. What's up, Kevin? Not much, man. We had uh, two little fun small days here in our hometown. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice to uh, go on a surf trip. We we just had a, a week to 10 days of pumping surf down in Pavones uh, for my birthday trip, and then come home and right into a, a nice swell, and that was super fun as well. Absolutely. I like that you and I went to Pavonis together at the same time and never surfed once <laughs> I know. I know. That was pretty funny. But, uh, and we now, we're, now we're knocking on the door of uh, another film festival. Yeah, no, I, this is uh, going to be one of those for the books. Uh, I wish we could have gotten Jerry Lopez here for this one, but the movie stands on its own. Everything Absolutely. you need to know is in the movie. And Stacey Peralta, once again, dead center over the fence i mean it is a really really good documentary yeah it's fantastic and uh that that night saturday night uh of the jerry film it's going to be preceded by some great short films um a, a new uh effort from rob machado uh called color of winter which is just beautiful cinematography rob on these Gorgeous California bluebird days. Yeah, and the music is insane. It's Pat Stacy and, and Rob work together on that. It's yep. uh, one of my favorites. That's a Saturday night. So for the record, that's going to be June 18th, Father's Day weekend, Saturday night. And we have a couple other shorts. Ishka Folkwell donating one to the cause called Distant Shore with some beautiful surfing, once again, by Torn Martin, who's been to the festival. So uh, I'm excited about that. We have a new filmmaker who put together a short piece about a friend who was impacted by 9-11. That's all shot in California. Uh, Yeah, Justin Rubin, I believe is his name. And yeah, really, really well-made film. Um, Great, great little short documentary. I think we have one more in that slot as well. I'm... I'm, uh, uh, Yeah, the the Wade Wade Carroll Carroll film. Yeah, Pretty Physics, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so... High performance, just mind-boggling action. Yeah, so Saturday night, obviously, we'll take you over the top, but uh, let Friday night sort of whet the appetite with Birth of the Endless Summer. Yeah, gosh, what a fantastic movie. Um, and I'm actually embarrassed to say that as, as much as I consider myself a hardcore surfer and a, and a student, per se, of surfing and of the culture and of the history, I had no idea about this. Well, it's like, neither did I. I, fe- I felt... Uh, caught off guard a little bit yeah I saw his name come across surf splendors podcast Uh, for the record everybody there's a four-part interview with Dick Metz founder of the surf heritage surfing heritage and cultural center out near Laguna Beach and uh, it is uh, the best four-part podcast I I can't turn it off I don't want to get out of the car when I'm listening to it yeah it's amazing this movie covers a lot of what the podcast covered but it's got this visual aspect to it 
that um, you know is mesmerizing as well. It's uh, a lot of the photographs that he shot on film and shipped back to his mom in Laguna Beach who developed the film. He didn't see any of his photographs until he got home after a three-year adventure. Yeah, and what's crazy too is that he talks in the podcast about how he got that special film so that he could set his camera on like a surface, like a wall or a table or a chair and open the shutter and walk away because a lot of these places, I mean, he was going to Tahiti and French Polynesia in, you know, Bora Bora and Pango Pango in the late 50s, early 60s. And like a lot of times he said people didn't want their picture taken. And so he could set the camera down, walk away, and they had no ideas taking a picture. And I feel like, gosh, that's probably pretty advanced technology film wise at that time. Exactly. Yeah. Somehow he worked it out. And, you know, I think there was a tribe in Africa that wasn't too keen on photographs, but the uh, way to snap a few was uh, he had to be sneaky about it. So, you know, uh, you imagine the risks that we take now to travel with all the modern conveniences that we have. And it's a friggin' joke, really, compared to what he went through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he literally went down to Mexico. He on, hitchhiked. He hitchhiked to from Panama. Laguna Beach to Panama <laughs> based on a magazine article that said that there would be French ships carrying French soldiers towards Asia for the French Indochine War. And he thought, maybe I could get on a boat with some of those guys, yeah. and they dropped me off in Tahiti. Zero confirmation of that, by the way. $2, yeah, $2, zero $2, confirmation, two grand in his pocket, and yeah, crazy. And I love the part where he talked about how he used to be a bartender at the Sandpiper in Laguna, and that's where he started his hitchhiking journey, because I have chugged a couple of beers in the Sandpiper. No way, It's right? still there to this day. <laughs> it's epic, and yeah, I just I thought that was amazing. I mean, what uh, what you find out is what John and I have already discovered uh, is that Dick Metz is a legend. He will eventually go down in history as one of the greatest surfers of our time. And 95% of us, 98% of us haven't heard about him. Um, and the crux of the movie is the discovery he made while, you know, traveling I say traveling through. He was there for like six months, I think, in South yeah, Africa. Yeah, living. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, everybody knows The Endless Summer, probably the most watched documentary of all time. And the highlight of that movie is Cape St. Francis. And, well, you know, from there, uh, we, we want to know really what happened. How did Bruce Brown find out about it and all this stuff? So Dick Metz is the man. Yeah, yeah. Dick went on this three-year odyssey around the world, and uh, he came back. And he had all those photos uh, that he had shipped back to his mom. And he, he sat down with his good friend, Bruce Brown. And, uh, you know, that kind of created the blueprint for the Endless Summer, which, as Kevin said, I mean, that's widely regarded as the most influential surf movie ever made. Yeah. Um, so that's coming Friday night. We're going to show that first. And then Matt Costa is also going to be in attendance that night. For the record, Dick Metz, who's 92 years old, will be at the festival along with Richard Yellen, who directed it. Uh, they'll do a Q&A after the film. Uh, we're going to show that first, like I said. And then after that, we've got a few shorts for you, including a great documentary about the Colapinto brothers. High action pack, fantastic surfing. Uh, we also have a short documentary. Not documentary, really. It's just more of a, a really cool travel 
piece into Oaxaca, Mexico, directed by Matt Costa. Yeah. Who's a musician, if you haven't heard of him, uh, and kind of comes from that Jack Johnson 2005, 2006 era is when he started his career and uh, been working ever since playing singer-songwriter shows. So I think he's got a band now, too. Yeah, he's got a band. He's a former professional skateboarder or actually probably still professional skateboarder. Um, Very talented musician. I've actually seen him uh, play live before. It's amazing. And uh, he does sometimes travel with a band on tour, but it's... uh, he is going to set up, and uh, after we show the movie, we'll do a little Q&A with Matt, and then he's going to play uh, a private concert for the fans. So we're super stoked about that. Yeah, included with your ticket that night. Uh, tickets are $25 per night or 35 for two. Uh, included with that ticket price is a live concert. We've never really done that before. Nah. Um, so this is going to be a first for us. I mean, we, we did have Eric play. After the uh, after Chloe's, Chloe's movie. movie, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a great night. So hopefully you can make it. This is Father's Day weekend, June 17th and 18th. Um, we want to have, uh, I think we have a couple other short movies in the mix. Morgan Mawson might be in there too that, yep. that Friday night. So that's going to whet your appetite for Friday. Tonight, we or today, we have no guests on the podcast. So in the spirit of surf stories... We wanted to put our very own John Brooks on the spot and say, <laughs> what have you got for us? He's got more than more than a few. But, uh, to, yeah, to keep the spirit of the podcast going, I figured we would listen to John, uh, you know, weave a little story of his own or share it with us. John, what have you got tonight? I mean, yeah, I mean, it was funny because listening, uh, I was listening to the podcasts that David uh, did on Surf Splendor with Dick Metz. And um, there, there's one thing I know going into the the Q&A is that I'm going to have to hold on to the microphone because <laughs> that man is a storyteller extraordinaire. And uh, he's just got such a wealth of information um, and it just got me thinking about some of the some of the trips that I've been on and the shenanigans that we've gotten into and things like that. Um, I've been really fortunate to to get to travel a lot of places all over the world and uh, you know go on surf trips and just see different cultures and not nearly to the extent that uh, that Dick has. But um, I, I feel very fortunate to have done some of the things I've done. Well, let's let's back up a little bit. You grew up where? Uh, I grew up here in Central Florida. And I uh, went to high school here, surfed here, you know, competed on the ESA and all that and was absolutely convinced I was going to be the next Kelly Slater, And uh, which was funny because I surfed against Kelly when I was young, like 11, and you could tell back then that he was going to be the best surfer in the world. He was that much better than all of us. Honestly, is that when you figured out that you were going to be in, in, like in for trouble if you, know, you had to surf against the likes of Kelly? Um, like 11 years old. No, years I didn't. Old. I didn't really think about it that way. I just it was it was inspiring. I'm as you know, I'm super competitive, it's true. <laughs> and it's true. so I just it just lit a fire under me, um, and I just was like, man, I, I just want to do that. I it wasn't. I I never. I was fortunate to have parents that were really supportive in anything that I did, and and my dad on a regular basis as a kid growing up, my dad would tell me, you can do anything you want to do. I played basketball in high. I went to a real small private high school and I played varsity basketball at five feet, five inches tall. That's because there were five boys in the graduating class. Exactly, exactly. And I can remember my dad being like, hey, if you wanted to, you could play in the NBA. With all the seriousness 
in his heart. Like he believed that. And, and you're and you're six inches shorter than Spud Webb. I know. So <laughs> yeah, I just I was fortunate to grow up with that kind of support uh, from my family, and um, so yeah, the surfing was the thing I liked to do the most. I played a bunch of different sports growing up, but surfing was my favorite thing. And so uh, when I came up against those you know guys like Kelly and and uh, surfing against them in ESA and getting absolutely destroyed, I just it just lit a fire okay. under me to try harder and well, so i and figured that in order to do that i needed to go to california so i i told my parents like i'm graduating high school and i just want to be a pro surfer and i'm i just want to move to california and they were kind of like okay like here's the compromise we give you our blessing to move to california if you go to college that and sounds I, good. I was like okay like yeah done like i'm going and like so, you legitimately thought you were going to surf heats and study for college at the same time uh, no, I never had any intention of studying for college, but I, I was, I was smart enough to know that that was my, that was my ticket out there with some family support. And so I, I went, I went to a, a small private college in Santa Barbara, um, got to surf Rincon, got to go to the ranch and the islands and just got introduced to a world that I didn't even know existed from a surfing standpoint. And, um, yeah, competed uh, competed in some professional contests. That's when we had the Bud Tour and the well, it was a different one every year. It was sure. the Bud Tour one year, it was the Panasonic Tour one year, it was the Clarion Tour one year, but it was a legit domestic tour in California. Let's get this on record. Who did you beat in a heat? That no, I would know. no, I'm not saying. I know I'm not a couple saying. of names. I, no, it's good. It's all good. I'm not throwing anybody out there. Right, no, no. Uh, let me just say to the listeners that I, it's no joke. I've heard these names, and I'm not going to say them out of respect, but John has beat some quality surfers in some heats, and uh, uh, color me impressed. But anyway, so moving on, where was your first surf trip? My overseas. first surf trip actually overseas was uh, when I was, I think I was 12, and my parents took me to Elbow Key in oh, the no, Bahamas. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, yep. that's cool. And that was a different time because it was uh, it was just my mom and dad and I. My, I can't remember why my brother didn't go or couldn't go or something, but it was just my mom and dad and I. And we rented a little house in Hopetown, and they just turned me loose with a bicycle and my board bag. And Did you I'd, score? I would leave the house at 7 a.m. and come back at dark, 12 years old. Did you score? Yeah. I mean, for a 12-year-old kid from Florida, I, I, got, I got fun, you know, Rush Reef and – few of the spots down there garbanzos um yeah i mean it was like for me it was like a little bit overhead it was probably only three to four feet but as a 12 year old surfing by right. yourself riding around a tropical island it was epic like I, I i felt like i was in the endless summer i was like so for jt and i it was knee high yes yes exactly exactly okay. um but yeah that was my first surf trip and Funny. yeah that's a great i mean 12 years old and I mean, Actually, I, I take it back. That was my second surf trip. They had taken me to my brother and I to California probably two years prior. I was maybe 10. Okay. That was first domestic surf trip. And then first international was, you know, when I was 12. And then supportive parents. That's um, great. Yeah. My, my grandmother traveled a lot. And, and um, so I would, she would take me places. Where'd you go? What was your second surf trip? And um, um, second surf trip overseas. Geez, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I always, I always remember that trip to Elbow Key as my first. But you got to, you got to wonder if it was in college to Europe when you, when you started studying over. Let we, me rephrase that. When you didn't study overseas, yeah, you, 
We started going as soon as I got to Santa Barbara. We started going to Mexico all the time. Oh, uh, for sure, yeah. Because right, right you could drive. Yeah. We drive down to you know and serve salsa puedes and um, yeah, Baja Malibu. Yeah, all, all down there because you could go down for the weekend and serve for two days and then be back for class and stuff. I know it was so easy back then, right? Yeah, and I mean there was I can remember getting up early and driving up to Halama on the north side of the ranch and surfing and being back for like nine thirty class. That's awesome. Um, One of my favorite stories from a friend of mine who who used to do that a lot. Uh, his name's John Ashley. He's a great guy and really funny to talk with about these stories. He's a good storyteller, um, but he was coming back across the border and had had some street meat at one of the taco stands down there, <laughs> and, you know, north of Ensenada. Oh, my God. And he had Montezuma's revenge so bad. He was in the back of his own pickup in line to cross the border, <laughs> sitting on a bucket with a bucket in front of him. <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. Yeah, he said it was the most miserable two-hour wait of his entire life. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, I've I've gotten pulled into secondary a few times at the border there at, at Tijuana, and it is not fun. They, oh. they put the fear of God in you. Good Lord. So you got some good Mexico trips down, and then uh, let's uh, let's move forward to college. Like, where'd you go? Yeah. Well, you went to Spain. I, I always love hearing your Spanish yeah, stories. I went and lived in Spain. I did a, a semester abroad and ended up staying for almost a year and uh, when, the, when the semester was up, I was just like, this is, this is too good. And so I, uh, I made some flyers, and I taught, I was, I taught English <laughs> okay. for 20 bucks an hour. Just, and it was mostly uh, attractive young ladies that wanted <laughs> to learn, language that wanted to learn how, to, how to speak um, slang, you know, English slang. They wanted to know all the cuss words and stuff and just conversational stuff. But, yeah, I was able – this was before – uh, the European Union, uh, Spain had its own uh, monetary system sure. called the peseta, okay. and it was worth nothing. It was like nine pesetas uh, to the dollar. It's like I was renting an apartment in San Sebastian, Spain, right on the beach for the equivalent of about 160 bucks a month. Stop. And Yeah. And then, wow. you know, quick train rides up to Hasegor, Biarritz, um, Short car rides down to uh, Mundaka. Did you buy a shitty car when you were there? Like uh, an yeah. old beater? Yeah, a little beater. Okay. Um, little uh, Datsun station wagon beater with uh, no no air conditioning. But wow. it didn't matter. It was, it was wintertime most of the, you know, when I was there. For one mostly. year, how many boards did you take? I had five boards. I, I had from a 510 to a 72. Wow, uh, you were standard nineties quiver, you know, five yeah. board, five, five ten short board, and then you know progressive step ups up to seven two. Okay, is this post a, uh, uh, professional surfing career, or is this like kind of in the middle? Of kind it, of right? in the middle, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you get five boards, you go to Spain. Um, at some point, I know you said you made it over. What what led you to the Canary Islands, right? So uh, when I went to Spain, one of the guys that I went to college with in Santa Barbara, his name is Tom Blush, and he was my roommate for a year, and he went to Spain at the same time, and so we were roommates there in Spain, too. We shared that apartment, and he, uh, when I left and came back to the States because I had to finish college, and my grandma was cracking the whip because she was nice enough to pay a hefty portion of the bill for college, um, so she was like, you, you need to get your ass back here and graduate type thing. But um, Tom stayed for a while and he went down to the Canary Islands. And then 
he came back and then we graduated and it was actually about a year and a half after that that he and i went back to the canary islands on our own okay all right and we had a tent and tom had some knowledge of the place but we went you know we went to lanzarote we went to la santa just like the main zone there and back then this would have been 95 96 but and back then it was la santa was like a little fishing village dude there was a few hundred people there was a few houses there was a restaurant um, there was one little surf shop that this Italian kid, he couldn't have been, he was like 18 or 19 years old. He moved from Italy and was learning to surf and he opened up a little surf shop. And uh, so, yeah, I was at that time I was working for Cordell Miller Surfboards. I was his general manager. And so I came with a, uh, a, a uh, like a coffin bag of six brand new Cordell Millers. Glassed in fins? No, no, no. All F- to FCS. FCS by then? Yeah, okay. they had FCS by then. And, uh, but I rode those boards a lot and we stayed there for, um, almost a year, like 10 months, I think. Oh my God. Give us the layout we, of the Canary Islands. How many are there? Where's Grand Canary? Oh gosh. Where's there's, the I think there's seven or eight. They're, they're, they're due West off the coast of Morocco. Um, and like, if you look at a map, they just point right towards the North Atlantic. So like all those big, nasty nor'easters that send waves to... Spain and France and England and Scotland and those massive waves up there, those are, you know, as they form and come across the North Atlantic, they're just pumping swell down towards uh, the Canaries, the the Azores, Madeira. Madeira is a long ways away, but it's in that same region. Um, But yeah, and Lanzarote is the northernmost island in the chain with unfettered access. There is nothing between Lanzarote and like the Arctic circle, like there's just open ocean swell. So a lot of people call it like the Hawaii of the Atlantic. It has a very similar feel, deep, deep ocean swell and a lot of power reef breaks like rock shelf reef and point breaks. And the first two or three weeks we slept in a tent, a two man tent on the beach. Um, and we literally like would, would go to the, the little bakery in the town and we'd get bread and cans of tuna fish and, um, we're literally just like living in a tent, surfing all day. Like Tom had a full workout regimen with like where we were like curling rocks and, and like <laughs> doing push-ups and stuff. The people in the town probably thought we were insane, but well, we yeah, were... I mean, it's a two-man tent. Like you couldn't afford like a four-man tent to give you some space. Not at the time. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. all right. But the cool thing was is that we started to befriend some of the people in the village yeah. and. Uh, And there's a really nice family and they had like a little efficiency off the side of their house and they rented it to us for $10 a week. Okay, score. And so we're like, all right, well, we're going to stay here for a while. Moving on up, man. Yeah. And um, actually a cool little story from that trip was um, there like about 10 miles down the road, there's this big gated walled up sports complex called Club La Santa. And it's still there to this day. And European athletes go there to train and get away from paparazzi and get away from TV cameras and all that stuff. And when we were there, um, George Foreman was there training for his comeback fight. I don't oh, know if you remember okay. that. I like remember mid, that Mid nineties. He won it. Yeah. Too. He punched so that guy out. There was one restaurant in the town or maybe two, but there was, the, there was one that we ate at. If we ate at a restaurant, we ate at this one. It was literally across the street from the little, uh, efficiency place we were staying. And, uh, we walked over there one night, we're having dinner, and all of a sudden the door opens and like 15 people come in the door, 
and I'm like kicking Tom under the table and he like looks at me and he's like, what? And I'm like, that's George Foreman, dude. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, we, we ate, ate dinner next to George Foreman and, uh, I assume all and, of his kids were there. George, 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 George. And George. I don't, I don't know how many I, they were. They looked more like, uh, like handlers and entourage guys didn't, didn't look like family. He, he was okay. at club La Santa, I, apparently training for his comeback fight and everything. I'm but, totally out of out of the blue here, but isn't Cristiano Ronaldo from Canary, like Canary Islands? Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, we'll could be. Look that up. Yeah. Right. But anyways, it was cool because as we as we walked out of the restaurant, like I kind of got in George's line of sight and gave him a little like, and I said, I said, go get him, champ. That's good. <laughs> and he just laughed. He's like smiled and laughed. But anyways, yeah, that was that was a fun story. Um, but yeah, that was a good time, um, and then uh, we ended up making our way back up to Spain. Because yeah, at the end of that trip, after ten months of you're being skipping over a pretty, lot, pretty pretty hard on those boards. I was, I was gonna say I like, was able to sell those boards to that Italian kid for eight hundred dollars a piece, oh, and I had six of them. Oh my god! So yeah, at the end of the trip, I'm like, oh my god, I'm rich. So we yeah. like Tom and I flew back to Spain, and wait, then we wait, went wait, through wait, Portugal. Wait, we back up. And like, then, how, did you no, sell? no, no. That's for another day. I'm I'm working towards a, a story. Okay, all right, all right. But yeah, it was. I'm I'm giving you snippets here, but um, but yeah, we went back through Portugal, Spain, ended up in France, and uh, stayed there for another like six or eight weeks before we came home. But the story I did want to share today is. Um, on a trip to Nicaragua, I've, I've gone uh, to the northern zone in Nicaragua quite a few times and uh, and stayed at Shea's place up there at the boom. and um, Chincletas? Chincletas, yep. Uh, beach resort or something yep. like that, yeah. Yep, and... Uh, Shout out to Shea, my buddy's down there right now. Yeah, yeah, Shea and Loretta are amazing. They uh, they have become like family. They, they're so uh, gracious and just fantastic hosts and... Uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, JT is actually the one that introduced me to Shea and to that spot. And uh, we actually were, we had gone to Porto Sandino. Um, this was, actually, this was 12 years ago because it just popped up on my phone as a memory. Uh, and Yeah, so it was 12 years ago and me and JT and Tank and Billy had gone to Porto Sandino and walked right into a nine feet at 22 seconds. And oh my. It looked like Indo, like it was as good as it gets. And then the swell dropped and it was kind of average compared to what we walked into. So JT was like, dude, we need to go. We need to go up to Shea's place. And we did. And we absolutely scored up there. Just a framing, you know, six to eight foot a framing barrels at well, Shea's place. And let's talk about the boom for a second. That That's an interesting wave because it does have this uh, sort of sandbar outside of an estuary that breaks up the longer period stuff that would otherwise on a beach break just shut down. Yeah, it'd be too much. It's actually really similar to New Smyrna. You've got a natural inlet that flows out, creates an outer shoal, breaks up the waves, amplifies the swell, and then, you know, turns it into these triangles, you know. And it's funny, I remember that there was an article, it used to be real hush-hush, like nobody nobody wanted to talk about it. Shea didn't want anybody to talk about it. He, He kept it real secret for a long time, which was the right thing to do. Um, but Cormican went down there on a trip and they, they did a story in ESM and they didn't want to say where it was or anything. And so I think they called it triangle beach cause oh, it was just yeah. like a frames, a frame triangles up and down the beach. 
it's it's an insane place. I went there in 2010 with uh, one of Shay's former coworkers, Sean Gilbert, who's been a guest on this podcast. And Shay used to be in the camera business, yeah, uh, back in the day, and, and shooting, you know, feature-length motion pictures, commercials, all that. But yeah, so I met them. I took my kids down there, and uh, kind of unsurfable for kids on in that section. You can go around. You can the go corner, around the corner. Yeah, and there's plenty of fun waves over there for the family. The, the boat ride out to that left point is fantastic. Yep. There's a couple other ways around there that if you, you know, you hit Shea up, he'll, uh, he'll give you the full tour. They have two packages there. They've got the stay at home at Boom package. Yep. And then they've got one. That North Nika package, they North call Nika. it. North Nika, yeah. You get on a boat almost every day or a car. Yeah. Cruise around. Get to, whether you're a beginner or you're an expert, you're going to find waves. Absolutely. There. The thing that's funny, too, is that as much as we complain about crowded surf and you know, there's too many people surfing, if you went and, and bought a house or rented a house and, and lived in northern Nicaragua for the next five years, you could surf by yourself all the time. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's usually, well, at least the boom is, is a high tide in the morning break. As yeah, the but there, there's, there's waves all over out there, and you just got to have a little exploration and a little time to, like, figure absolutely. out the right tide and that kind of thing. But, but one particular trip to Nicaragua um, that, that was pretty pretty funny experience um, so Shay and Loretta had gotten to the point where they had hired a, a manager to kind of run the business there and was freeing them up to do some other things, uh, in the town. Cause they've been very influential in the town, um, helping the locals. They employ almost exclusively locals from, uh, Aceradoris, the little fishing village that's down the road. They've been a huge impact on those folks' lives. And, um, the, manager i'm not going to say his name but uh he had messed up the arrival times and so we were doing that old late night flight out of fort lauderdale where you take off from fort lauderdale 11 30 and you land in managua at 1 a.m and there's supposed to be a van uh there to pick you up and drive you up to shay's place like a three and a half hour drive and uh he had gotten the date mixed up and so we land 1 a.m get our boards and there's nobody there. And a lot of international airports, folks don't realize, like most foreign airports, they close the airport at night. Right. Like in America, the airport's open all night. But in most of these other places, at like 1 or 2 in the morning, they close the airport, kick you out on the street. Yeah, that happened to me in Bali. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's happened to me in Jakarta as well. And uh, yeah, when they kick you out on the street in Managua, they kick you out onto the Pan American Highway. I mean, it's it's right there. It's right there. And uh, so we're, we're outside the airport, and we're in the little pickup lane, and uh, it's 2.30 in the morning, and there's all these Nicaraguan taxi drivers and cab drivers and just dudes hanging around, and they're just eyeballing us, and then they start, they realize, they, they know, like, your ride ain't coming, and so they start coming over and start trying to, you know, sweeten us, uh, you know, sweeten the deal. And, hey, we'll take you where you need to go and this and that. We're all, I'm, in the meantime, I'm on my phone trying to get a hold of the manager, but it's 2.30 in the morning. He's asleep. So he's not answering his phone. So finally, we, we figure out, we go, you know what? Um, yeah, we're going to have to figure out our own ride. So, um, and, and JT and Billy are with me on this one. And I think Tank is too. Yeah, yeah, Tank was there. Um, in fact, I think Tank's dad was with us that time as well. But uh, so we go, we, we start talking to these guys and we start trying to figure out, we need two vehicles. I think there's six of us. So we need two vehicles. And I mean, we're, this is a three and a half hour drive. 
And we tell them, we're like, hey, we want to go to this place. It's called Chincletas. It's near Aceradoras or near Lyon. Lyon is the biggest major city that's close to that area. Chinandega is arguably. Chinandega. Yeah. But, and and they're like, they're giving you that typical like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know where that is. Yeah, 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 sure, we know where that is. And you're like, I'm not even sure you understand what I'm saying. But, you know, they're just giving you the typical like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know where it is, know where it is. So we get in a we, – we, the two cars that come to get us, it, one is a Yugo, a straight-up real Yugo, and it's two doors with a little back seat. And me and Billy get in the back seat. Billy's not a small man. <laughs> and uh, so – and the floorboard is, like, eaten away by rust. So the exhaust is coming up through the floorboard. Oh. So I got the window down, and I'm, like, hanging my head out the window so I don't get asphyxiated. And – Oh, the other thing, too, is that we, true idiots, like we didn't bring straps because we didn't think we needed them. It's always a van that picks you up and you throw your board bag inside. Okay. So we don't have racks or straps or rope or anything to tie the boards onto the roof of this Yugo and, or the other vehicle that we got, too. It was like a little SUV or something. And so the guy, the driver of the Yugo, he goes and talks to his buddies and he comes back with I, – I cannot describe it as anything other than a piece of twine. Like, this is twine that, like, you'd get at Michael's and do, like, crafting with. Like, it is – there is no substance to this thing at all. And we we got four board bags tied to the roof with one piece of twine that's maybe seven feet long. Wow. It it barely reached – in That's fact, an accomplishment. And, and there's no, there's no 24-hour hardware stores in Managua. No, it's interesting. Kidding. There are yeah. any. <laughs> and uh, so, anyways, we start driving. The boards are like turning sideways. Sure. We're like holding the boards out the window, and we start going. And the the driver of the other vehicle spoke a little bit of English, but the dri- our driver in the Yugo spoke zero English. And so we're we're you know trying to tell him like oh like slower like más despacio por favor and. You know, we're trying to communicate this guy that the boards, like, this is precious cargo. We cannot have these things fly off the roof. So we're driving down the Pan American Highway. We get all loaded up. We're driving down the Pan American Highway. The boards are an absolute disaster. And But without saying anything, this guy just makes a hard right off the Pan American Highway and just starts driving down the road into downtown Managua. This is at, not, by now it's 3.30 in the morning. And it's pitch black, and he just takes a hard right and starts going down a road, and then makes a left, and then another right, and then another left. And I'm like, I have no idea where we are. And I'm actually pretty good with directions and, and like, remembering things. But I'm, like, I'm looking at Billy, and I'm like, Billy, dude, I have no idea how to get back to the highway. Like, dude, I, I don't know what's going on. Billy's trying to talk to the guy. He spoke a little bit better Spanish. Is there Spanish. car behind you, or where are they? It's kind of behind us, but it's like way behind us to where we can't so tell like if it's, can't really, it's we can't tell okay. if it's our car or another car or whatever. And and at this point, we're starting to get we're starting to hit the panic button. Um, and so this guy this guy makes probably seven turns, left, right, left, right, and the final turn he makes a left, and we start driving down an alley that you can see in the distance is dead end, and in the distance there's like thirty guys. And they're standing around 55-gallon metal, 55-gallon drums with fires in them. Like, it's a scene out of a movie. That's like, how they this is where you This is where bodies, you yeah. take uh, tourists to die, you know, right. and rob them and kill them. 
type thing. It's, it totally looks like a scene out of a movie like that. And Billy and I are looking at each other. He's given up trying to communicate with the driver because the driver won't say anything back to him. And, and Billy and I, I look at Billy and I, and I go. You're thinking about running for it. I go, no. I go, all right, dude. I go, I go Billy, I go, are you ready to kill a human being? I, I was dead serious. It was no joke. And I said, are you ready to kill a human being? Because it might come to that in a minute. And he, he looked at me, and, and we had a little moment. We looked at each other, and it was like, dude, it's on. Let's do this. Okay. And so the car comes to a stop. He pulls up to this crowd of guys. He's maybe 25 feet away. He pulls up to this crowd of guys. He stops the car. Bill and I jump out, backs against the wall of the building to, like, you know, head on a swivel, just, like, ready to fight. I'm looking around on the ground for, like, something to pick up and, like, hit somebody with, you know? Uh, yeah, I would have pulled a muscle just doing that. Probably. Yeah, yeah. And the driver... Gets out of the car and, like, walks towards the group of guys. And he kind of turns around and looks at us like, you guys are weird, you know? Not in a menacing way. Just, like, what is wrong with you people? He walks over to the crowd. He talks to this guy for 15 seconds. They go into one of the buildings through a doorway. And we're just, like, me and Billy are in, like, karate judo stance. Like, just mean mugging everybody. Just, like, we're going to effing kill you, you know? Yeah, well, all and they're of all just and they're all just natural. Defense, oh, dude, adrenaline is all of it's coming spiking. Out. Yeah, like it's like and blood pressure is probably two twenty over one ten. Heart rate's one hundred and fifty. We're just like jacked, you know. And this guy's in the building for maybe sixty seconds. He comes out the door. Yeah, and he holds up over his head and he goes, "I got more string." <laughs> I don't even think uh, he said it that way because he didn't speak good English. He just like more string, more string. Oh, you're kidding! And he me. had a and he had a he had a fucking piece of rope to tie the boards down with. And uh, dude, we felt so bad. We felt so embarrassed and just like this guy is the sweetest man on earth. Like he just drove in the dad. middle of the night yeah. into you know uh, probably five or six miles out of his way. And gas is not cheap in Nicaragua no, or no, anywhere no. else in the world. Um, or right. here anymore, by the way. But, uh, yeah, it just was so funny, dude. It was like such an adrenaline high and then such a quick plummet down to where it was like, oh, wow, uh, we, pro- we feel like pretty foolish Americans at this point. <laughs> but, dude, it was, we had a good laugh, and it was classic. And then uh, we, we tied the boards down. We were able to secure the boards more and then got back in the car on our way. If you can call a Yugo a car, that's being generous. And, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're, you're very calm now. You're ready to get the six pack and drink your way to Shenandega. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I bet. I, I mean, I, that has typically been the MO of my high school friends on every trip, which is a cooler of beer should be in the car when they pick us up. And if not, it will be within 10 minutes. And so the whole idea being... Uh, you know, party your way there. But that was not a party. That was not fun. That sounds like a little bit of a... It was fun in the end. rush. But yeah, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, it was one of those things where you really start to like self-analyze and you're like, what am I going to do in a situation like yeah, this? Yes, that's true. Because yeah. in, in our minds, we were being placed in a true fight or flight situation. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like flight was an option. What are we going to do? Run down the street in Managua at 3.30 in the morning? Yeah, that that seems like a more likely way to get killed than anything. Were JT and Tank behind you though? They pulled up like as it all as he came out with the rope. The other oh, vehicle pulled, pulled in, in behind us. Okay. Yeah, and then we all we all had a good laugh wow, and deep breath. Yeah, but as most of these situations go, 
we got there uh, right at sunup, and it was pumping. Okay. Well, like yeah. Four, four to five feet, glassy offshore barrels just pumping. Well, whole trip was good and, after that. And normally those are those are the good endings. Like there's there's only a handful of situations where tourists have really gotten into trouble in situations like that. But it doesn't mean you haven't heard those stories, and it doesn't mean you're nervous. You know, nervous about. It. But the brotherhood of man is a real thing. I've noticed sure. this in everywhere I've traveled. Uh, it is always almost always always the inclination of a stranger if you look at him look at him in the face with a smile Mm -hmm. and a humble you know sort of respect that you will be greeted with kindness and it's you know it's not always been the case i understand that's a little naive sometimes but in a situation like that that sounds i mean first of all your driver wasn't there second of all you don't know if we don't, know, guys who, we don't know who the right these guys way, are. They might know? have thought you were going to the Caribbean side at this. You know, yeah. You, you don't know what's going on. And then, you know, you're going in a dark alley. It's like escalating quickly. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a great story. Obviously, it ended well. You got there and surfed with no sleep. Probably crashed yep. out. We got there and just paddled right out. There and, you go. Yeah. Surfed for a few hours and then went and crashed and then had a fantastic five more days there and just getting tubed and. Having, a great, having a great time with Shay and Loretta and, you know, the, their girls. And, and uh, yeah, it's just – it's an amazing place. If uh, if you're looking for a quick, uh, you know, strike mission type trip, I, I can't recommend anything any better. Chancletus Beach Resort um, is uh, their handle on Instagram. And uh, they'll, they'll take such good care of you, and I can say that with all the confidence in the world. Yeah. Now, at this point, I think, gosh, I've been down there – 12 or 13 sure. times and it's uh it's just a magical place and they put a pool in and um when we first started going it was pretty rudimentary but now it's it's a it's a legit resort they got bocce ball and horse riding on the beach and uh, a pool and uh i, mean, I, I think great. a pool table oh the food's fantastic and uh nothing better than getting out of the water walking up the trail and having them Put an ice cold Tonya in your hand. Yeah, right. So I spent a week down there with Richenberg, Randy Richenberg, and uh, every afternoon, you know, be on shore. But it kind of calmed down to get a little quiet at, you know, at dawn um, or at dusk. And uh, he would walk the two kilometers down to the estuary with his fishing rod. And one day I was like, I'm just going to go with him. Brought my camera with me. And yeah. Um, he. Uh, you know, was bagging two snook a night oh, down yeah. there, right in the estuary. And it's not always that way. I mean, it was definitely the right season. It was December, early December. And, uh, yeah, I caught some great photos of Randy uh, hooking up with a couple snook we ate at that night. You know, he shared it with everybody. Oh, yeah. And well, if anybody's going to sniff out a fish, it's Randy. No that, doubt. That guy's got a magical connection with the ocean. And what's funny is that we actually surfed with him this morning down at New Smyrna at the inlet. And um, I'm not even sure how old Randy is, but I know he's in his 60s. And uh, yeah, what a ripper! The guy, yeah, he's just surfing so good. I, and there was one wave in particular. I was telling JT like he he was like scratching to get into it. He just barely caught it. Like stood up, did one highline pump, and then just did the crispest slice in the pocket. Big old fan comes off, and I'm like, dude, that's epic. Like that's my dream to to you know continue surfing at that level you know at, at that age and yeah there's a few there's a few guys be, out there to look still up be like super that. stoked and Randy's yeah one of them yeah we were out there busting each other's chops and it was yeah it's great time 
Well, I tell you, your story is no Dick Metz being harassed by crocodiles in the Nile. No, no, not at all. It was still pretty good. Thanks for sharing with us. Uh, and we'll just go ahead and post this one under John Brooks. We'll work on a title for you. Yeah, yeah, we'll and, figure uh, it out. More string. More string. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, all, of all the hairy situations we've all been in, we can relate a little bit, and so that's a good one. So, all right, thank you very much. We'll hopefully see everybody at the festival on the 17th and 18th. If you guys have any questions for us or ideas on podcasts, it's info at Florida Surf Film Festival. Dot com and uh thanks for all the support it's been fun uh starting this during covid and seeing where it's gone and i think we're at episode 27 i think now, so which is pretty yeah. good i'd like to do more it's just uh time is is always hard to find when you're raising a family and uh you know uh, well, we got those jobs that we keep having to go oh, to yeah. and then the surf is fun you gotta lose those jobs right? some days you gotta play golf yeah and, yeah it's, <laughs> there's not enough hours in the day but but yeah right. if you enjoy storytelling Definitely come out to the festival. Dick Metz is going to be there, and that man has some stories, and uh, I'm sure he'll be uh, just cruising around the festival holding court and and ready to talk to the fans. And uh, So, yeah, we're excited about that, and uh, just want to say thanks to our presenting sponsor, Monster Energy, of course, uh, Red Dog Surf Shop, uh, Globe Footwear, Rourke Apparel. Um, we'll have the Rourke film on Friday night with Matt Costa and a little private concert afterwards. So it's really shaping up to be a fantastic weekend. So definitely come out if you can. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing everybody out there. You got it, John. Thanks a lot. You.